you added up all of those pressures on whaling over many centuries, the populations of virtually every single commercially valuable whale plummeted and is only a shadow of what it was hundreds of years ago. Imagine killing a whale. You and your crewmates are pulling the oars of a small boat, chasing an animal that's many times as large as that boat you're sitting in. It's your job to shove a harpoon into the whale as hard as you can, and then you have to row that animal back to a much larger ship where there's an industrialized process to render it down into its component parts and then sell them all over the country and the world. A mythology has been built up around the American oil man who headed out west and found black gold. But whaling was, in a sense, the oil boom before that oil boom. The American whaling industry thrived from the late 1700s through to the mid-1800s. It was responsible for killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of whales. Yet, at the same time, it was also one of the key industries that supported early America. Join us as we explore American whaling. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. We have the great pleasure this morning of talking with Eric J. Dolan, who's the author of many books, but uh, apropos to today's conversation is Leviathan, the history of whaling in America that's available on amazon.com or his website, ericjdolan.com. It's J-J-A-Y. Eric, thank you so much for talking with us. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Sure. Thanks for having me. I think that whaling has been forgotten largely in American history, but I'm really curious, where did it start? Why, why was it such an integral part, particularly for the really early settlers? Why was it so important to their early economic development? Well, you have to remember the early settlers came from Europe and in Europe, whaling had been a going concern for hundreds of years before the uh, colonies even came into existence. In uh, England, France, and Spain, uh, a whale's tongue was reserved for eating by the king and royalty. They ate whale meat extensively throughout Europe, and they also used whale oil for illumination. So when the colonists came over, when the Plymouth colony was started and the Massachusetts Bay colony was started, the people that came over were very familiar with whaling and the value of whaling products and they began drift whaling right away. They didn't go out and kill whales in boats, but they waited for whales to wash ashore. And once they did, they would process them. But one of the interesting things about the early colonial whaling industry is that although they came from a part of the world that loved to eat whales, uh, the colonists never got into eating whales. They basically just used the blubber to render it down into oil, which was used for illumination. And also they used the baleen, which hung down in the mouths of right whales and other baleen whales like humpback whales for hoop skirts and, and other purposes. So that's really how whaling began in early America. And it quickly became a rather large industry. It well started from drift whaling when there were a lot of whales here. 
a large number of them would just die and drift ashore and there'd be somebody on the beach to keep an eye out for it. And then they call everybody down to do the processing. But after a while in the late 1600s, basically, the number of whales that were randomly washing ashore started to decrease. So they got into these whale boats, which were 24 foot long, 25 foot long boats, cedar clapboard, about a half inch of wood between them and the ocean. They would get into these boats, usually six men at a time. A number of them were Native Americans, and they would row out to where the whale was seen, harpoon them, bring them back to shore, and do the processing just the same. So that was the first 100, 110, 120 years of the whaling industry in America. And then it started to transition, and we could talk about that <clears> a little about, bit as well. When you learn about the early colonial period in American history class or whatever, a lot of times there's a focus on gold. You know, people wanted to come over here for mm-hmm. to get rich in gold and, and things like that. So when early settlers were coming over here, when the colonists were coming over here, were whales thought of as one of the resources that they were really excited about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. John Smith, who came and investigated New England in 1614, That actually, his voyage was actually to do a number of things, one of which was find gold and silver and also uh, fisheries, but he also was looking for whales. And one of the things that he wrote in his diary uh, later on was that if he and his men had had more success harpooning whales, which they didn't, he had planned to set up shop in North America. It wasn't called North America at the time, but he had planned to establish a colony in New England to uh, start whaling because he knew how valuable of an industry it was back in Europe. So yes, whaling in a way was viewed as a natural resource akin to gold, of course, not as valuable as gold, uh, but it was definitely something that produced income and people saw it avidly. You mentioned you use, obviously, oil for for burning for candles. You use the baleen in in women's hoop skirts. But what size industry was this, particularly back in the old world before people came to North America? Was this truly a kind of an oil industry as we think of the petroleum industry today? Was this a really massive industry back in Europe? I don't know if I'd call it massive. It was rather large. I mean, the fishing industry is probably, the general fishing industry is probably much larger, but it was a fairly substantial industry. And there were a lot of books back then and treatises were written on whaling. And it was an important part of a culture's identity and their economic output. But I don't know if I would relate it directly to the oil industry as it is today. But as we move along in colonial whaling and then into the United States whaling, there is a very clear parallel between the whaling industry of then and the oil industry that we have now. Back in Europe, the whaling industry was large, but it wasn't as all-encompassing as the oil industry is today. But I think that if you go into the colonies right before the American Revolution, the whaling industry was very large. And then, of course, after the American Revolution, when we became a country and the golden age of whaling began and really took off in the mid-1800s, it was one of the largest industries in the country. And it was very important economically. And I think the parallels between it and the modern oil industry are more apropos when we're talking about a whaling industry that employed 70,000 people, had $70 million worth of capital invested in it. Uh, In 1846, the height of the golden age of whaling, there were 735 American whale ships out of a total of 900 worldwide. We really were lighting the world at that time. Tens of thousands of whales were being killed 
And whaling itself was the fifth largest industry in the United States and the third largest industry here in Massachusetts after shoes and, and linen. So it was a major force, uh, both economically and culturally. That's really amazing. And I think between you know the older history and that, there's some context that's really important because I think these days, when we go on tropical vacations, for instance, you might have a whale washing expedition, and it's this really exotic thing that you get to go do. And it's pretty rare. You just don't encounter whales all that often. But but something you mentioned earlier was the shore whaling, the, the whales right. just drifting onto shore. And I remember reading in Leviathan that there were accounts where whales were so thick in some bays or harbors or whatnot that people acted as though they might be able to walk across the water on the whales. It was so thick. So I think there's some context that we just don't have in the modern world. How plentiful were whales back then? How common was it to encounter whales when people first came to the shores of North America? Oh, extremely common. If you could go back in time and go on a whale watching expedition in Massachusetts Bay in 1600, you would literally be surrounded by whales almost every single moment, or you'd see them in the distance. There were huge numbers of whales, just like when John Smith came to the New World and other fishermen from Europe came to the New World, they were astounded by the number of codfish and other fish species that you could literally just dip a basket over the side of your vessel and come up with uh, some hefty codfish or haddock or some other type of fish. The result of whaling, both colonial whaling, whaling in the United States and whaling around the world, and especially industrialized whaling, which really didn't take off until the 1900s. And by that time, America was pretty much out of the whaling game. But if you added up all of those pressures on whaling over many centuries, the populations of virtually every single commercially valuable whale plummeted and is only a shadow of what it was hundreds of years ago. However, I have to say that the number of uh, whale species that are no longer hunted have been making a pretty dramatic comeback. Sperm whales, for example, which were very heavily hunted in colonial America and in the United States and other countries throughout the 1800s, there are millions of them in the Pacific Ocean and other, uh, other oceans around the world. But right whales, which used to be very, very plentiful, the scientists can't tell you exactly how many right whales there were hundreds of years ago, but it was infinitely more than there are today. The North Atlantic right whale, they're only something on the order of 250, I think, to 300 individuals back 300 years ago. There were certainly tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of right whales up and down the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, the right whales was one of the prime species that they pursued during the early parts of the whaling industry because they were very fat and they, had, they produced a lot of oil. And their populations to begin with, unfortunately, were smaller than, for example, the sperm whale populations because sperm whales were hunted very aggressively because spermaceti oil, which came out of the head or the spermaceti organ of the whale was the most valuable and cleanest burning whale oil of all. So whalemen pursued them with uh, great avidity, but because the populations of sperm whales started out much, much larger than the populations of right whales, even though they were extensively hunted, when the hunting ended, there were more sperm whales left than there were for the right whales, which couldn't sustain the same level of hunting pressure. There's a real tragedy, I think, to whaling that I, I want to come back to because I think it's a, a really fascinating topic, particularly from a modern 
animal rights perspective. One, one question I do have, though, you've probably seen the old maps of the sea and so forth, where people talk about sea monsters and, and things like that. There's a lot of exaggeration inherent in primary sources sometimes. Do you think there's any chance that some of the accounts of you know, carpets of whales so thick you could walk across, obviously maybe an exaggeration, but do you think there's any chance that the, the numbers of whales were exaggerated by these, the early whalers? Uh, perhaps, but uh, think about it. They really had no incentive to exaggerate because their ability to make a living was contingent upon their ability to find and kill whales. And uh, it's clear from the evidence and the growth of the industry for hundreds of years that they were very adept at finding whales and killing them. And then when they destroyed a local population, they move off to a different whaling ground and uh, then eliminate the whales from, from there. So that often quoted statement that you could, uh, I think it was, you could literally walk across the back of whales from Provincetown to Plymouth <laughs> in Massachusetts Bay is, of course, an exaggeration. But there's no doubt that there were huge number of whales back before people were aggressively pursuing them in the North Atlantic and Western North Atlantic, because in the Eastern North Atlantic, where Europe is, uh, they had been whaling for centuries before the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony even came into an existence. So we can't go back and take a snapshot and really get a, a visceral image of how many whales they were, but we know that they were killing hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of whales for year in and year out. So there must have been an awful lot of them. And you would read accounts from whalemen that would uh, go out on the ocean, that they would often be surrounded by just a multitude of whales spouting in every direction. And that was fascinating to me working on the book, to read the accounts of people both in the 1730s and 40s when offshore whaling was really taking off. You'd read these accounts that, you know, the whales out here is as, as busy as bees and they're just pl they're flocking, they're like passenger pigeons of the ocean. And even in the Pacific, in the 1800s, when they went to different areas to seek out sperm whales, for example, they would see them cavorting and spy hopping and spouting all over the place. And then finally, in the 1840s and 50s, when whalemen finally penetrated the Arctic Ocean and discovered this bonanza of bowhead whales, which have the longest baleen of all of any whale in their mouths and are huge, much larger than right whales and have a huge amount of blubber to render down into oil, they suddenly discovered a very large population of bowhead whales, but intensive hunting for 10, 20, 30 years of bowhead whales dramatically reduced those populations and they're still rather low today. I think that's a great segue into the economic aspect of whaling, the why of whaling. Why did so many whalemen really risk their lives to go out and hunt these big creatures? There were some obvious things like whale blubber. I think we're all pretty familiar with the idea that whale blubber was something that was commercially valuable. But there were some lesser known pieces of whaling, things like spermaceti <clears throat> from the sperm whales. Can you walk us through why did this industry develop so quickly in the United States? What were the economic drivers there? What was actually sold from the whales that became such a valuable industry, one of the largest industries in the early United States? 
Well, the main products were the oil that was rendered out of the blubber of whales. Also, as you mentioned, the spermaceti oil from the sperm whale, which came out of the spermaceti organ. There were many barrels of this very thick, milky oil that they could extract from the head of a whale. And that was the cleanest burning and the brightest whale oil of all, and it commanded the highest price. It was also uh, not only used for illumination in oil form, uh, for example, early lighthouses in the late 1700s and up through the mid-1800s uh, used spermaceti whale oil, and uh, the reflectors sent those rays out into the ocean to guide mariners home and out of port. But also, spermaceti oil was very widely used in the spermaceti candle industry. They would transform them into candles, which were a favorite of uh, many people who like to read at night or do work at night. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was a big fan of spermaceti candles. So was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, another product was baleen, of course, and baleen whales, which was used for coach whips and hoops and hoop skirts and the stays and corsets, which were all the rage in the 1800s and even into the early 1900s. There was also the uh, ambergris, which is a very rare product. It's basically a byproduct of irritation in a sperm whale's bowel, and they they uh, defecate this stuff, ambergris, which is a waxy material that somebody somehow, uh, <laughs> I don't remember the details, but some perfumer uh, discovered that if you add little bit of ambergris to perfume, it helps the scent linger longer. And that literally became worth its weight in gold. It was a rare find. Sometimes you would find ambergris floating on the ocean after a sperm whale had defecated, but also when they used to process sperm whales, they would specifically look in the bowels of the sperm whale to see if they could find it. And sometimes they found lumps of ambergris that were 50, 60, 100 pounds or more that could uh, literally make a miniature fortune for somebody. That one has been such a persistent mystery to me. How did a perfumer figure out that ambergris <laughs> could be used in perfume? I That is a mystery to me. Uh, yeah. I'm not even sure if I knew that at one time. I don't really go into any great detail because it goes all the way, it goes back uh, thousands of years. It was something that was known for quite a while that ambergris, because it used to wash up on beaches all the time. And people had different theories about where it came from. Some people thought it came from whales. Other people thought it was these strange emanations from the bottom of the ocean that just floated upwards. Uh, some people thought it was spittle from dragons that lived in the ocean. But ambergris had long been used as something to make the scent of uh, perfume last longer. But also ambergris was used as an aphrodisiac. And uh, uh, there were kings. I have some accounts in the book of the kings, and I can't remember which king it was, but there was a king, and one of his favorite dishes was ambergris and eggs, you know, sort of like scrambled eggs with ambergris in it. So kings like ambergris, you have the hoop skirts, you have the whale oil candles, the spermaceti candles that Ben Franklin liked. These sound like a lot of luxury products. Was this a primarily a, an industry catering to the wealthy of the time? Well, the wealthy were critical components of it, especially for spermaceti candles and spermaceti oil, which uh, outside of the lighthouse industry was not something that an average person could afford to buy. And certainly ambergris was well beyond their reach. But uh, whale oil, more inferior whale oil coming from right whales or humpback whales or minke whales even, 
that whale oil was widely distributed and uh, average people were able to use it. So it wasn't only the rich that were propping up the whaling industry. And you also have to remember that starting in the late 1700s, but primarily in the 1800s, when whale oil became incredibly valuable, not only for illumination, but for lubrication, whale oil helped to lubricate the Industrial Revolution. So companies and people who had businesses and had gears that needed to operate properly and smoothly would buy huge quantities of whale oil. So whether you wanted to classify them as being the wealthier part of society or not, they were an integral part of society that helped prop up the whale oil industry. And the value of whale oil itself, both as illumination and as lubrication, you get a sense of that because people were often trying to discover replacements for whale oil. For illumination, there was coal gas derived from coal. There was this thing called camphene, which was a distillate of turpentine and alcohol, which made very bright lights, but had the annoying byproduct of sometimes exploding at inconvenient times. Which is they, never good. Never good. And they also had something uh, lard or, or, or oil from hogs which appropriately enough were called prairie whales because they processed their fat much like they processed whale oil. And that was another illuminant. There was also a vegetable illuminant called colza, which came from a plant that grew in Europe primarily. So they were always looking for alternatives. When when whaling really started industrializing in, in tandem with the broader industrial revolution, when we think about the cotton mills or any mill that was powered by the river running by, let's say, yep. uh, were a lot of those machines, those early machines fired by coal or powered by water, were they literally lubricated by whales in a lot of cases? Yeah, yeah, whale oil was one of the best lubricants, certainly up to the mid-1800s. And as everybody knows, in 1859, they discovered oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania. And then all of a sudden, there were cheap and plentiful supplies of all sorts of petroleum byproducts, which are used as lubricants, and also kerosene, which was a cheaper and a very good illuminant, which sort of knocked whale oil out of the way. But So the revolution in the oil industry killed most of the whaling industry, certainly the whaling industry that related to lubrication and the whaling industry that related to illumination. I think it's fascinating to really understand as the Industrial Revolution was taking hold, America's whaling industry began to industrialize. I guess it's a chicken and the egg question. Was that because of the industrialization going on in just machines broadly? What was the interplay between the, the industrialization of the whaling industry and just the industrialization of the economy as a whole? Yeah, well, as in any business operation, it's all about supply and demand. So what happened is the whaling industry kept expanding because there were more and more people who were willing to purchase the products. And the whalemen themselves, especially the whale owners, plowed their profits into purchasing more vessels faster vessels, vessels that could hold more oil, investing in better technology, limited though it was in the beginning, better harpoons, better sails, you know, better sailors, hiring better people. So as long as demand continued to expand, the industry expanded. And there were times when demand slipped and the industry went through some pretty rough patches where a lot of whale ships were kept in port instead of going out to hunt more whales. So just like 
any business cycle, it's affected primarily by the ability to sell your product. Was so, the American uh, Revolution a big part of, of halting the whale industry's growth? Oh, absolutely. Whales, are, whale, whales can be actually quite good for certain types of trade and smuggling. But for the whaling industry, it was a unadulterated disaster. Because right before the American Revolution, there were about 360 whale ships operating from the colonies, most of them from Massachusetts and most of those from Nantucket. During the war, whaling basically ground to a halt. There were some whalemen, some whale owners that took their ships and tried to whale from England or France, actually to get out of the colonies where they would likely be attacked by the British or stopped by British blockades. And demand dried up a little bit. So the whaling industry that had been one of the largest industries in the colonies before the American Revolution, when the American Revolution ended, there were only maybe a score of whale ships left. And a number of them were in bad shape. So the whaling industry had to build itself up again after the American Revolution, but it started to do that rather rapidly because the United States developed economically, also commercial ties that had been broken during the American Revolution between the United States and other countries, including England, which before the American Revolution had been the primary purchaser of American whaling products. Well, a couple of years after the American Revolution, the relationship between America and France and Spain, and most importantly, England, had been rehabilitated. In fact, England and America were once again trading at much higher levels than they'd been trading at before the American Revolution. And so demand started to skyrocket. The whaling industry expanded. And then in the 1790s, whalemen for the first time ventured into the Pacific Ocean, which was teeming with millions of sperm whales, the most valuable whale of all. And that gave the industry another big bump. But of course, as everybody knows, in 1812, what happens? The War of 1812. The War of 1812 did exactly the same thing that the American Revolution did to the American whaling industry. It basically shut it down. And then after the War of 1812 was over, the demand that had been there formally for whaling products didn't entirely disappear. Uh, a peaceful country with new uh, international trading opportunities suddenly started sending out more and more whale oil. And it was a much more international industry at that time. There were other countries that were pursuing whales, but America was taking the lead. And with larger and larger ships, and then the introduction of railroad travel connecting both sides of our country, and also connecting parts of Europe, within Europe, the opportunity and the ability to sell oil on the international market and move it around the world was much improved. And that only added to the ability of whaling companies to sell their products. So, it's basically a typical story of uh, business success. You have a product that is valuable. You have a product that people want. You have a way to get that product out of the ocean in this case, or that natural resource. And you have a way to deliver it to those who want it, want, wanted it. So it was a, it was a real American success story. 
Let's turn to some of the the darker underbelly, I suppose, of of the whaling industry in the United States, because I think that's a really important topic to to talk through for a couple minutes. But as whale populations began to decline in in the early colonial period, you could perhaps walk across some harbors. There were so many so many whales, but that became much less of the case as the whaling industry matured, and you got these bigger vessels that were going out on much more industrialized whale hunts farther and farther afield. Can you paint a picture for us of what what that whale whale population collapse was really like? Yeah, well, in order to understand the collapse of whaling populations, you have to look at the different eras of whaling and the different participants. And we're focusing just on Yankee whaling or American whaling. The only two species of whale that they really sent to the edge were northern right whales and bowhead whales, which had small populations to begin with, and there was extreme hunting pressure. So we're still living with the remnants of that today. The bowhead populations in the Arctic Ocean are not particularly large, and certainly the right whale populations are very, very small, and the animal is on the edge of extinction. So Yankee whaling is clearly implicated there. But for all the other whales, many of which the Yankee whalemen never pursued, like Yankee whalemen would never go after a fin whale or a blue whale. They just were too large, too hard to handle. And uh, sperm whales, they certainly went out after. But there were so many of them that even though the Yankee whalemen put a major dent in their populations, they were never Uh, on the cusp of extinction, nor are they today. But then if you look at the whaling that arose in the late 1800s and more in the early 1900s when Yankee whaling died out, by the mid-1920s, there were virtually no American whale ships left sailing the oceans. But they had been replaced by much larger fleets of whale ships from Norway, from Japan, from Russia, Germany, England, many other countries. And that's really where the industrialization of whaling took place. The Yankee whalemen in the early 1900s still went out on a wooden whaling ship, like the Charles W. Morgan, the last wooden whaling ship in the world, which you can see at Mystic Seaport. They still went out on those whale ships. They still hunted pretty much the way that a whaleman 50 or 100 years before would have hunted. The only big change was some of the harpoons were better designed and they were just starting to use bomb lances and sort of uh, cannon harpoons. So And those are are literally, they're they're shot with gunpowder, I assume, and then explode in the whale, correct? Yes, yeah, they're devastating. I mean, you know, it's hard enough as as a human being, if you're in a little, in a whale boat, you had to get, uh, they used to call it wood to black skin because you needed to get very close to a whale to get a harpoon to lodge in the whale deep enough so it would take hold. Because whale blubber, unlike our blubber, our fat, is very, very fibrous. And for example, a sperm whale could have a blubber coat that could be two feet thick and very, very tough. So if you were trying to throw a harpoon, human-powered harpoon, into the side of a sperm whale, you couldn't throw it 50, 100 feet. I mean, you couldn't be strong enough to throw it that far because it's fairly heavy. But you needed to be about maybe 10 feet away, 20 feet away at most, in order to be able to throw it with enough force so that it would go deep enough that it would hang on so you could tire the whale out and then ultimately bring it back to the mothership. But with these bomb lances and these harpoon cannons, then you could shoot the whale from the main ship 
And it was much, much easier to kill whales. And it just became a whole different process. But what really changed in the 1900s is that's when the great era of the wooden whale ship, the sailing whale ship, totally died. And then they had motorized, steel-hulled ships that could go much, much faster and go anywhere, whether or not the wind is blowing. And then they also had these enormous weapons that they uh, unleashed on these whales. So it was literally like shooting goldfish in a barrel. And what happened in the 1900s, in a single year of industrialized whaling, let's say in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, the number of whales killed in a single year by the whaling fleets of all these other countries would be more than the whales that the Yankee whaling fleet of 735 ships could kill in a decade. So it was a whole order of magnitude larger and the amount of devastation and death was much greater. And that's why, and this is also because they had these larger ships and more powerful weapons and a greater ability to process whales. They didn't have to go after just smaller whales like the Yankee whalemen. They could go after the fin whales and the blue whales, the two largest whales of all. And uh, that's why blue whale populations in particular are not in great shape today because hundreds of thousands of them were slaughtered during the 20th century. And another difference, and you know, I don't know how this cuts whether you say, oh, this is a good development or bad development, but if you go back to the fur trade and you talk about the bison and how we slaughtered the American buffalo, there used to be 60 million of them on the range, supposedly, even if there are only 20 million. By the end of the 1800s, there were about 1,000 or 1,500 that were left. Americans who hunted bison were very wasteful. They often just took out the tongues, which were used as a delicacy in a restaurant on the East Coast and the West Coast, or they took off their robes and left the rest of the bison to rot. Native Americans, however, used every single part of the bison, and it was a very important part of their spiritual and physical life. And the reason I'm talking about the bison, there's a parallel with whales. The American whalemen only used a couple of things from the whale. I mean, it was major things, the blubber and the baleen, but the rest of the whale, the meat and everything else was left to sink to the bottom of the ocean. The new industrialized whaling uh, countries, many of them, in particular Japan, used whales not only for the oil, which was used to make margarine back then, but they would use the gut of the whale to get strings for tennis rackets, for example. And they'd use the bones of the whale for, for meal or, or a nitrogen source, calcium source for, for agriculture. So although they killed more whales, they used them more efficiently. But nevertheless, the end result of industrialized whaling in the 20th century was a dramatic reduction in the populations of some of our largest and most magnificent whaling populations. And that, of course, is what led the international efforts to ban whaling, which uh, took place for many, many years and finally culminated, I think it was in the 1980s, with the whaling moratorium. But still, even to this day, there are a few countries, such as Japan, such as uh, Norway, I think. I'm not sure if they're doing it this year, but there are a couple of countries that are doing whaling on a very minor 
scale, but they are continuing to whale. And of course, native communities in Alaska and other places are often given exemptions and allowed to whale on a very small scale to satisfy their cultural needs. Sorry, that's sort of a long-winded explanation. There's a You have to understand that it wasn't Yankee whaling that depleted certain species. You have to look at the whole range of whaling, how it evolved, especially in the 20th century when whaling truly became industrialized. And it was sort of it was the same. You think about the early development of automobiles in the late 1800s. They would make them. It was like a craft industry. They, you know, it was very hard to make an automobile. They weren't that sophisticated at the time. But then along comes Henry Ford, and he, and he, he uh, develops the assembly line. And the scientific method is applied to the production of equipment, in this case, cars. Well, the whaling industry was the same way. The industrialization of whaling was basically creating a much more efficient, larger, and more effective assembly line to kill and process whales. Putting aside industrialized whaling then in the 20th century and looking really at Yankee whaling and what in the United States was the the golden age of whaling, I think any way you slice it, killing a whale just seems so cruel from a modern perspective in a lot of ways. You know, the animal rights movement has uh, taken hold over the past decades. And I, I think what has become apparent is that whales are intelligent creatures. They feel they have family units. Uh, you, you, if you've ever seen a photo of a whale eye, I mean, it, it seems that there's some sort of intelligence there. And I think these were horrifying ordeals to go through for for the whales. But that that is a modern perspective. And I, I wonder for the average Yankee whaleman back in the 1700s or, or 1800s, was there any sense that what they were doing was cruel or, or was it a very different viewpoint that they had back then? The short answer is no, but uh, I want to take a step back. In the introduction to Leviathan, I made a point of telling the reader that I wasn't going to judge the Yankee whaleman based on modern standards and perspectives, because I, too, have a similar feeling to what you just discussed. I, I, I think there's absolutely no reason for us to be killing whales. They are very intelligent beings, and it is very cruel, and there's absolutely no doubt that they feel pain, and it's horrific to be on the other end of a harpoon. But you have to put yourself back in the time of the 1700s and 1800s. This is before the conservation movement took off, well before the environmental movement took off. Most people, virtually everybody in society, viewed natural resources as something to be utilized for man to have dominion over, to extract as much wealth as they could from the environment and use it for their own purposes. And there were virtually no people at the time expressing concerns about driving these animals towards extinction or reducing their populations. The only way they expressed a concern is they didn't want to kill the goose that produced the golden egg. So if populations started to deplete, they weren't concerned because these animals were sentient beings and they should have a right to exist. They were concerned because if they kill too many whales and there are no more whales left, they were not going to be able to earn money and their industry was going to evaporate. So it was much more of an economic concern, not a moral or sort of empathetic concern towards the, the, the well-being of these 
organisms. There were a couple of minor, minor exceptions. There was a letter that I found that was in the Honolulu Friend newspaper in the mid-1850s, and there was a letter to the editor, and it was supposedly written by a polar whale, in other words, a bowhead whale. And essentially the letter, which is beautiful and must have been written by a whaleman or an ex-whaleman, the, the polar whale is pleading with the American whaleman to stop hunting his brethren and sending them towards extinction because they deserve the right to exist too. So that was basically the only letter, only evidence that I could find in the 1800s of people actually being really concerned about the whales themselves. You know, the 1850s saw that letter. Do you think it took that long just because whales were so plentiful before that, that it it seemed almost an infinite resource? Yes. Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of comments like that, especially in the early 1800s. Whalemen were convinced that you know, there are always going to be more whales to find. We can always go further afield. If if the whales along the coast of Chile are hunted out, we can go further into the center of the Pacific Ocean, and then we can go further to the north, because as we all know, the world is quite large, and the oceans cover a huge part of that. So there was always somewhere else to look. There was always another commons to take advantage of. Towards the end of the 1800s, even towards the end of the 1800s, whaling in America really started to peter out. They weren't going out for whale oil anymore. They weren't going out to get lubrication. Uh, Illumination was really not what whales were being used for, or the the oil. The only thing that was propping up the whaling industry in the late 1800s was baleen. And that's why they were focusing so intently on bowhead whales in the Arctic Ocean, because corsets were all the rage. And as we know, corsets create this hourglass figure for women. And the way to do that is to have a stiffening agent in the corset itself. And baleen was perfect for that because it's sort of like our fingernails, but on a much larger scale, when you take baleen and you heat it up a little bit, you can mold it or shape it. And then when you cool it down, it retains the shape it's given. So it was perfect for creating these little stays, these baleen stays that were either curved or straight, but they helped keep the woman's stomach, let's say, in uh, under control. But what happened there is in the early 1900s, uh, a French designer by the name of Paul Perret decided that women shouldn't have an hourglass figure anymore. They should have a slimmer profile. And as a result, almost overnight, the demand for baleen stays, which were the most expensive and most desirable stays, evaporated. And that really put the final nail in the American whaling industry. But even then, even in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were not many people talking about, hey, we're pushing these bowheads to extinction, or we're just hunting too many whales, or this is really cruel. It was happening a little bit more in the conservation movement based on land-based animals, because certainly by the mid-1800s, there were many people who were expressing concern about what we were doing to the American bison, about what we had done to the American beaver, about uh, passenger pigeons in the late 1800s. Smaller and smaller flocks were being seen. And finally, the last passenger pigeon died in 1907, Martha and the Cincinnati Zoo. So if you look at the conservation movement, which I have extensively, both because of my educational background and I've written books about the fur trade and, and other aspects and the National Wildlife Refuge System, 
What you see is in late 1800s and early 1900s, the time of John Muir and other people, and uh, you know Walt Whitman and other, and David Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, there are people expressing great concern about the natural world and giving it value just based on what it is, not in relation to what it can do for human beings. But most of that impetus really focused on, or most of the concern seemed to set around land-based animals or migratory birds, which were being used, uh, their plumes to adorn women's hats, but less of it was focused on whales. There was also some interest or some concern about depletion of fish species, but not so much whales. One of the things that fascinates me most and disturbs me most about history, not just American history, and it's sort of been a a sub-theme in a lot of what I've written about, and it certainly was something that I read a lot about because my undergraduate master's and PhD are all in environmental policy, so I've sort of been immersed in this world, and you realize how much of our society, our society is basically built on taking advantage of the environment for our own purposes. Everywhere you look, we're extracting natural resources, whether it be animals or minerals, rocks, you name it, and we're turning them into products that help us, however we want to define it, live better, develop our industries, and eat. So it's so fundamentally important. Without all of these natural resources, there'd be nothing, we wouldn't have a society. And what you see over and over again, you saw it with whaling, you see it in the fur trade, you see it in extractive industries, you see it in dam building. What you see over and over again is as human desire and use of natural resources expands, there are pressures put on those natural resources. And you often get to a point where society starts to ask whether what they're doing is sustainable just for business's purposes or is ethical or appropriate based on some concern about the natural resources, especially animals in their own right. And today, when we have, of course, the environmental movement and a lot of people concerned about animal rights and a lot of people concerned about global climate change and our impact on the environment, it's prevalent and it's around us all the time, whether or not you believe those are important issues or no. But if you put yourself 100 years back, maybe 150 years back, those are not the conversations anybody would be having. So it makes sense when you push a resource to the edge and that affects you directly, that's when you really start to focus on it. So it's an unfortunate story, but history is littered with tales of destruction of the environment that have in turn benefited us. Final question for you, Eric, and I'm always interested in learning this about particular subjects, but what lesson do you think that we learned from whaling that can be applied to today's world? And putting that another way, are there patterns or systems from whaling that we may not even realize, but they they shape the decisions that we all make today in some way? I answered that to some extent. I I thought about that question One is what I was just talking about, is that our country, every single country is built on the back of natural resources. They often say Canada was built on the back of beavers. Uh, And we certainly were somewhat built on 
uh, on, on whales and the fur trade and mineral resources and all sorts of things. So it's very important to respect the environment because it's the very thing that enables us to live and grow in the manner that we choose to. And But the flip side of that, there's also a limit to the how much abuse natural resources can take, and that certainly applies to whales. But another theme that I take away from the whaling industry is that the, the technologies and the resources that we depend on change over time. And for whalemen during the golden age, they thought that uh, they were going to be whaling 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, that this was never going to disappear, this industry. But then all of, cut, all of a sudden, you get the oil industry that displaced uh, part of the whaling industry. And then baleen is, has its legs knocked out from under it. And there goes the Yankee whaling industry. And what that says to me is that there is always a evolution or or change and what you think is going to be there forever and what you depend on right now may be quite different from what you're going to depend on 10, 20, 30 years in the distance. And the oil industry has been in the ascendancy for quite a long time, since the mid 1800s. And still today, we are an economy that is based largely on oil. However, I can absolutely guarantee that that is not going to be the case in the future. How far in the future, I don't know. But wind, solar, electric power is going to continue to grow. And eventually, it's going to take over, not only for economic reasons or through the depletion of oil resources, but also because I think we as a society, and I'm speaking about the world, not just us, is ultimately going to decide or be forced to make changes in order to improve the quality of our life and keep from having catastrophic changes that are going to deteriorate the quality of our life. So history shows you that what you think is, is constant is not, and change is inevitable. Uh, the direction that it's going to come from is not always well known, but eventually it's going to uh, it's going to bite you. And uh, and I, I'm for one very eager to see the change that gets us to shift slowly or fast away from an oil based economy to one that is cleaner and better for all of us, both in economic terms and in health terms, and not just us, but the other animals that we share the planet with. I really appreciate all the time, Eric J. Dolan. And again, that's ericjdolan.com. You can find more about Eric and all his many books he's written, a lot of fascinating books. But thank you, Eric. Really appreciate you joining. Thank you for having me. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC.